You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is the fourth episode in a mini-series on decarbonization. So far in the series, we've taken a deep dive into MAS's decarbonization journey and heard quite a bit from Sid Amalian about their challenges and the importance of partnership to achieving their decarbonization goals. We've also heard from several different levels of the denim supply chain, from brand to mill to somebody working regularly with cotton farmers, about their decarbonization struggles. And in the last episode, I shared some practical guidance for talking to manufacturers about decarbonization that hopefully helps to create a more constructive conversation. But I wanted to spend an episode really cutting to the chase a little more directly, Do apparel manufacturers have mapped pathways for achieving their decarbonization targets or not? This episode features responses to this question from three different manufacturers. Mustafa Ahmed, the general manager of sustainability for U.S. apparel and textiles in Pakistan. Krishna Manda, the vice president of corporate sustainability for lensing. And Matthew Gunther, the director of environmental sustainability for tall apparel. Their short answer? No. But I want to make sure there's no misunderstanding. These individuals care deeply about the state of the planet, and the companies they work for are doing an enormous amount to tackle climate change. So their answers aren't about a lack of intention or commitment to the cause. Instead, I would describe their answers more as an act of desperation or a cry for help, an attempt to get a world busy congratulating itself on setting ambitious reduced greenhouse gas emissions targets to sit up pay attention and have a real conversation about what hitting these targets will actually require from brands, governments, and manufacturers alike. On a logistical note, there's one final episode tentatively planned for this mini-series, but it involves quite a few different people, and so bringing it to life has been a bit of a logistical challenge. But I always try to put substance above all else on this show, so even if that means releasing an episode out of sequence at a later stage, that's okay with me. Um, So stay tuned and thank you for your patience. I'll also be closing out the year with an episode that strips back to basics. What's a brand? What's a supplier? These terms are so critical to the sustainable fashion vernacular, and yet they are terms that mean very different things depending on where one sits. So stay tuned for that episode as well. This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following along on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off the beaten path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show and I'd really love your help with that. This first clip is a conversation with Mustafa Ahmed, the General Manager of Sustainability for the U.S. Apparel and Textiles Group in Pakistan. Mustafa, do you have a mapped pathway for achieving your decarbonization target? We have a tentative plan and that can change any minute based on, you know, so many factors that are playing in. So it's very difficult to have that consolidated action plan which you know will work because it won't 
with the <laughs> floods uh, in Pakistan, with the ever-changing dynamics of the supply chains, with the industrial uh, issues, the energy issues in the country, the crisis, the government uh, policies and everything, the government changing. Uh, so it's 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 a very tentative action plan that we have. Uh, and fortunate- will that action plan get you all the way? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I think uh, it'll be too premature to say that. Yeah. I mean, because uh, 45% reduction at our scope one and two, yes, maybe. By 2030, just becomes a maybe. And as we go ahead to net zero, it's a big if. Uh, so if this happens, then yes, if. And if and what are if. the biggest ifs? What are the things that would need to fall uh, into place? A green uh, grid ele- electricity, which I don't see happening because Pakistan, uh, I think, originally committed 2038. So unless the grid goes green, uh, we won't have scope two at 100% green uh, or renewable. Uh, and the emissions won't become net zero because energy is the primary, uh, the biggest factor that goes in for the carbon footprint. Um, uh, one thing that I think we can uh, very much bet on is that um, renewable energy in its own, uh, we've tried to work on and we've tried, now we're entering into a lot of projects with biomass and everything, but there's only a certain amount that can be dealt with, mm-hmm. spe- specifically with solar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, 20% to 25% of the total consumption. With grid electricity, we will... Uh, be again a primary source of our use in electricity for biomass it will greatly affect the heating load not the electrical load is there even enough biomass uh, the supply chain for biomass in pakistan is now increasing uh, now it's becoming an entity and industry of its own so the potential is there but uh, the availability, as I said, you know, are the plan changes now with the floods. 40% of the crop was affected. Right. And that directly affects the biomass supply chain. And right. similarly, it would be, it is, we can't, end, uh, this is an agriculture and a farming country. So the fodder crop can't be touched a lot. Uh, and one more thing would now uh, directly impact is the prices. The prices of the uh, biomass will go up. So the biomass energy will, might become not that um, cheap as it's you know assumed it is. So with more uh, industries entering into the same fold, these this fuel will become expensive and not very easy to have. But at the moment, the potential is there. So then, okay, the potential is there. The like roadmap may be a bit fuzzy. Like, are these science-based targets greenwashing then? The science-based targets themselves are not, I would, I might not say that they're greenwashing, but they are a little ambitious. Yeah. Uh, we might get there, but we might not get there the way they want us to get there and the timeline yeah. they want us to get there. Uh, but uh, they're just very ambitious, especially for developing countries, of course. Of course. The infrastructure yeah. was never ready for a net zero uh, ambition. What would be your ask from the brands that you produce for? The ability to be recognized. And that Mm. recognition comes with acknowledging a premium for all the sustainability activities. If the average cost (laughs) of the buyer goes down, 
and your sustainability requirements go up then it's it's you know it's a contradiction there yeah. so that's i guess they're working with us uh, on lots of fronts uh, but uh, as very rightly pointed out through this uh, conference as well that a trillion dollar industry requires a huge investment to just get us back on you know the next zero path on the yeah. right path so that would be but when you say pay for it you mean the financing or you mean for the products themselves yeah both both yeah <laughs> i mean that's the biggest issue now yeah uh, it's going to be securing the finances for it for a country like ours um, the biggest deal for dealing with our uh, uh, scope 3 value chains is going yeah. to be finance yeah and uh, premium not just for the product but also for the projects because unfortunately what happens is if you want to buy a recycling plant if you want to buy an etp plant if you want to buy a biomass good plant it comes from europe the technology or comes from china through the european uh, vendors and that has to be made accessible and cheap it is a partnership right so in the end it's not it cannot be a policy driven thing it must be a partnership driven thing so what does partnership mean for you it means working with us not asking us to work on it but working with us which would then mean taking the liability taking the cost share taking the shared profits and losses and the losses yes yeah so uh, and we hope the, to do the same for our uh, value chain. chains supply chains the second clip is a conversation with krishna manda the vice president of corporate sustainability for lenzi Krishna, do you have a map pathway for achieving your decarbonization targets? We are Lensing Group set a science-based target in uh, 2019 and it's also got approved by the science-based target initiative. However, the real fun starts then, right? So, um the way I look at it is um you need to set up the governance before. Mm. So, it matters who is leading the topic at the company level. So we what we did was immediately our CEO was very enthusiastic and and he took the ownership of the topic so he became a chair of um the climate change target that's like especially the target okay. point of view. Okay. The second thing is that we have um uh, nominated a project manager because the impact is happening in the facilities, right? However, they might not have sometimes the knowledge from outside they know where maybe the the consumption of energy and where the fuels are coming uh, but they also need some support from people who can think outside the box and bring the expertise to the uh, to the to the facility so what the the function of this project manager is to facilitate road map creation mm. so we didn't have a i mean we have a what do you call um, very high level road road map at the group uh, we started to create in 2020 that was the first version but then with that high level road map uh, my pro- our project manager went to each facility mm-hmm. and then asked to inspire them this is what we think we can go yeah. but what can you individually contribute from your context because it's all context dependent so each facility need to look at what is my energy drivers and what are my 
uh, efficiency uh, related improvements possible and what is my geographical context for the fuels that I can source all these things are very very site specific so those guys the, the directors of facilities have their utility teams looking into what um, can be achieved by 2030 because that is our target mm. right so we started to look at some uh, levers energy efficiency meter efficiency then um, uh, the renewable i mean renewable electricity purchase to replace the from the grid mm-hmm. and the third one is um, uh, substitution of uh, high carbon intensive fuels with low carbon intensive fuels like coal to natural gas to biomass mm-hmm. um, and there are other things to engage the supply chain most of the times the the industry that that, that has process like uh, wet processing like dyeing finishing and those but also chemical manufacturers are are even raw material providers like us uh, making cellulose fibers we have a lot of heat demand like so if you look at the energy demand 80% comes from heating and 20% from electricity so that's the challenge electricity have cha- uh, kind of alternatives in mm-hmm. wind solar and those but heat has so few opportunities now biomass but you don't have enough biomass to cater to the whole industry and you also need to ensure that biomass comes from sustainable sources so it is not causing any unnecessary unwanted impacts like deforestation somewhere else so you need to be very careful what you are sourcing from so how do you get there if without having renewable fuels like hydrogen people say that i hear both positive and negative things about hydrogen um, but also uh, so we need to look at one part is renewable fuels mm. the second part is maybe switching the heating demand to that means the machines should be converted towards more electricity demand i don't know it depends on the process so um and and is it is it going to get you to 45% i mean actually <laughs> if you look at yeah. the the it depends on the facility right yeah. some facilities are uh, coal based mm-hmm. when they are coal based um you see if you move from coal to natural gas you will get a 50% reduction from that facility however how easy to get to natural gas right it's very difficult so having the road map is one thing but able to implement is totally different thing yeah. so ideas and plans are there but how do you materialize them yeah. that is actually the challenge that the industry is facing including lensing mm-hmm. so we have uh, road maps like in in um, let's say one of our facility in uh, in china mm-hmm. it's a completely coal based mm-hmm. until now but we are transforming it to natural gas based uh, and also procuring green electricity from the grid we have the plan we have invested already bought the boiler okay. and everything and we are waiting for the the, um, the gas connection ah. and, and approval from the local uh, authorities and those kind of things and you know um it also linked to liberalization of energy market in some countries energy is liberalized that means there is competition so you can have conversations and, mm. and get the contracts and those and also it depends on the reserves of the country on natural gas and how much demand from different sectors and what is the priority of the government is the government's priority is to give it to the consumer or if they want to give it to the industry all these things matter mm. so where are you located if you are in the city or if you are outside and there are priorities of each region mm. so all these things are so many complications despite you have good intentions if you don't fit into the bill of that country's um, policy from that region it is very difficult so we are actually making good progress 
but that is not actually as straightforward as people think about mm. and by the way when you invest in natural gas for example the plant might last for 30 40 years so you also need to look for uh, the uh, lock in investments are, are um, so those kind of things also we need to see we cannot push manufacturers to change completely from uh, this to this but you will be locked in for next 20 30 years so we are also looking those kind of things carefully so this is very complicated so we have a plan we know how to how what are the options we have but we don't have a kind of a blueprint with exactly this is what going to happen because there are so many bottlenecks uh, and challenges that we need to solve on the way uh, just to give you um the other thing is that even if you go to natural gas but you still have 50% of the emissions how do you get them down to right net zero? how do you get exactly how do you get the rest of the way yeah exactly so that that needs to come from the innovation point of view so how your uh, machines are operating are they using uh, heat or the steam um, can you move towards more electricity based machines assuming that electricity comes from renewables that means there is enough renewables capacity on the grid of that country that means the country has to uh, scale the renewable energy generation which is peanuts nowadays i mean despite uh, india example i was telling Uh, they have grown by 50 fold in the last few years 50 fold is a lot right mm-hmm. but if the base is so low like 0.1 gigawatt hour <laughs> or gigawatt then you can yeah. have 5 gigawatt yeah. is 50 yeah. per times so what we are, what we are talking is enormous scales and global south especially the um, apparel manufacturing countries like india bangladesh pakistan china is actually investing a lot of money like 60 b 80 billion dollars every year but none of the other countries, countries are investing so this is all linked to the manufacturer's ability to actually scale things they yeah. cannot do themselves yeah. alone and last but not least this third clip is a conversation with matthew gunther of tall apparel matthew is the director of environmental sustainability for tall apparel Matthew, do you have a mapped pathway for achieving your decarbonization targets? I should give a little bit of context uh, on the company. So we are a garment manufacturer. Uh, we have headquarters in Hong Kong. We have manufacturing production in Vietnam, Thailand, China, and Ethiopia. And we have... uh we're members of the fashion industry charter for climate action and or i should say signatories and so signatories to this charter commitment have committed themselves to decarbonizing their scopes 1 2 and 3 greenhouse gas emissions by uh, 50% by 2030 although they can also set science based targets which is the plan for our company uh, as well is to set a science based target for decarbonization we have started out um we've been collecting we've been setting or doing our greenhouse gas footprinting since 2009 and we have a long track record of of reducing our greenhouse gas intensity and absolute emissions for a number of years but certainly nowhere on the scale that's needed to reach the uh climate change targets that are required 
to keep climate change manageable for the entire world, um, or at least to be able to do our part to be able to do that. So at least, so within scope one and two, um, and I'm going to assume here that everyone's kind of familiar with greenhouse gas decarbonization language. Um, we've done a greenhouse gas reduction, you know, roadmap for our scopes one and two. Um, this roadmap uh, uh, projects out like a business as usual scenario from our base year, which is 2018. Um, and it says, okay, so assuming, you know, normal kind of business growth projections, we're going to reach um, about 90,000 to 100,000 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions uh, per year. If we don't obviously do anything, that's the business as usual. And then we've mapped out what our kind of like our interventions are, or so-called like wedges that will be able to reduce our emissions by a certain amount. So I should say here from our 2018 base year, which is about 78,000 tons of CO2 equivalent, we need to get down to about uh, 42, 43,000 tons CO2 equivalent. Um, and don't, never mind my, you know, eh, we know we have an exact number, but just to give a figure for. Um, and so basically, Business as usual, 90,000 tons CO2 equivalent. We need to get down to somewhere between 42 and 43,000 tons. And we have a number of wedges that will likely get us about halfway there. So we have energy efficiency, which would, you know, based on some of our equipment upgrades, that will achieve about a 9% CO2 reduction. We have installing rooftop solar across all of our factories. That'll get us about another six to seven percent. Then we have, say, switching to natural gas, uh, which is the at the time was the more likely scenario uh, for all of our boilers. So switch from fuel oil to natural gas or coal to natural gas, um, and that'll get us another thirteen percent. So that all adds up to about a twenty-five percent reduction, and we still have another twenty-five percent uh, reduction that we don't really know how we're going to achieve. At this point, we have mapped out some scenarios, uh, which one would be uh, the electricity grids uh, start integrating renewable energy in all of our locations. And I think we would need, um, I believe the figure was a 35% uh, reduction in, say, the emission factor intensity of our grids to be able to actually achieve our um, 45% reduction. Now, we also mapped out some potential policy frameworks. So for example, in some of the countries we, uh, well, I'll say in Vietnam, they've been talking about a so-called direct power purchase agreement uh, pilot. Um, it's not really a direct power purchase agreement. It's more like a virtual power purchase agreement in that um, we can link up with a renewable energy developer uh, and essentially they would sell, you know, they would sell the electricity to the grid, but we would essentially own the energy attributes of that, the green attributes of that electricity, um, which would then be uh, a cover, uh, you know, 100% of or, or up to at least around 80 to 100% of our electricity in Vietnam. 
And so if that were to pilot would go forward uh, because of the production volume in Vietnam, it's likely that we would be able to just about reach our target, but we'd still have a bit of a of a gap. And that's still assuming all the other wedges are implemented and met. Um, but there's no guarantee that that pilot will necessarily go forward or be able to get an agreement with a um, renewable energy developer. Um, we've looked into, for example, natural gas uh, as, as, as in terms of switching to natural gas, still a little bit of a challenge around that. I mean, it's still a fossil fuel, so it's only an interim solution. And we know that. So, you know, get us to 2030 and then we have to figure out what we do after that. You know, uh, we can't really lock ourselves into natural gas. Everyone, there's a lot of people talking about biomass. In our opinion, biomass is another um kind of transient fuel um, that, you know, maybe it gets us, helps us to 2030, but certainly probably doesn't really help to 2050 or that kind of net zero commitment as well that uh, people are, are committing to. So, um, so that's kind of where we are in, and, and kind of thinking about what that challenge is. We're kind of, you know, we're setting ourselves up. We've, we've signed these commitments, but it's a bit of a, daunting challenge. We kind of know how to get about halfway there to our stated target. Um, but we're, we're kind of worried about what we're going to do with the uh, other 25% and how to fill in those wedges. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. 